Welcome back to That's Ancient History. I am your host, Jean Mingus, and in today's episode, I am so excited and thrilled to be sharing with you an interview I conducted recently with Jessie Burton. Conducted sounds so intense there. It was a lovely conversation and chat, that's what it was, about her latest novel. So if you're not familiar with Jessie's work, she is the author of three fiction novels, The Miniaturist, The Muse and The Confession, all for adults, as well as a fairy tale retelling for children called The Restless Girls. And most recently, and most pertinent for this podcast, is her young adult retelling of the Greek and Roman myth of Medusa. Yes, a new Medusa retelling. I cannot tell you how ecstatic I am to have another one of these on my shelves, another one to talk about because it's a myth that I feel like is not retold enough in modern literature and isn't discussed enough from the well protagonist or the woman's perspective because a lot of us are most familiar with Medusa via her depiction in classic Hollywood films like Clash of the Titan where she is this monster. Similarly in the depictions of her in art she again quite often appears as this monster and that's something that Jessie and I did talk about and it's so nice to see her story reclaimed here as a young woman who experiences a trauma and has to find a way to live her life and to find herself within her experiences. This episode will deal um, partly with sexual violence, misogyny and sexism so I just want to give you a heads up in advance in case that's something you're just not ready to listen to today and maybe want to come back another day. But I do think that this book handles all of those subjects so wonderfully, thoughtfully and sensitively and it's an incredible novel. It's accompanied by beautiful illustrations by the fine artist Olivia Lomonek Gill and if you're not convinced to pick it up already just by my little ramble here at the beginning I am sure you're going to be by the end of this interview because like I mentioned Jessie is such a fascinating author to talk to. The way that she talks about her book and writing the book and the themes and the topics that it covers are just so wonderfully expressive and convincing. I love this book, I loved chatting to Jessie and I'm sure you are all going to love it as well. It's definitely one to add to the TBR piles if you haven't read it already. And that being said, don't worry if you haven't read it yet because there are no spoilers within this podcast. It is a conversation though that I thoroughly enjoyed being able to participate in and I'm so excited to share with you. I do want to mention briefly though that I do think the audio on my side of the interview isn't the best. I would have preferred it to be slightly crisper but it's definitely audible and to be honest I am doing a lot less of the talking in this episode because this is an interview and it's all just the trials and tribulations of adapting to the new world in which most of my podcasts are now being recorded virtually over Zoom or Skype and I hope you will excuse the small bumps along the way of adapting to that. But with that being said I think it's about time that we hear from Jessie herself so let's crack on with the interview. Well, thank you so much for joining me uh, remotely. I have already read Medusa. We've actually already talked briefly about Medusa in a previous interview, so I hope you don't mind me covering some of the same ground, but hopefully in a little bit more in-depth. And I've definitely had more questions mulling in my brain since we last talked, because, I mean, I loved the book. It was absolutely spectacular. Um, And I have to always kick off with the most obvious question, but it's always the one that interests me most most with any writer who decides to tackle a Greek myth, and that's how they first encountered that character or that myth. 
Yeah, I think for me, it was actually less through any written word and actually through painting, um, because I remember seeing, I don't know where, but probably not in the flesh, but maybe, maybe, I don't know. I don't know where it's permanently held, but um, Caravaggio's portrait mm. of Medusa, which is um, very arresting and it's on a, on a disc rather than a rectangular piece of canvas. So it looks like a shield. Um, I suppose like the shield Athena carried with the head of the Medusa on it. And it's so nightmarish, it's horrific. It's scary and intense and arresting. And I just remembered that. And I don't know when I first saw it, but whenever I thought of the Medusa, I thought of that Caravaggio painting. Mm. And then I remember seeing I sound like a very rarefied art visitor because the next thing I remember was the Bernini sculpture. Um, but I don't know why. I mean, it was just the way it went. But like the Bernini sculpture of this. And instead of her looking super angry, she looked very sorrowful. And she's got these, this kind of writhing nest of snakes on her hair. And they're very droopy. And she looks droopy. She looks as if the, the snakes are like a wet mop. They're just sort of heavy on her head yeah. so those are the two those are my two introductions to Medusa and I didn't really know much about her story or the myth of mm. Medusa but I knew that um you know she was a kind of target for Perseus as a means um as a a, a way to his his heroic glory um on his path to kind of stardom in the in the in the myth so that was and I don't know when that was but I think that was a long time ago like we're not talking recent um kind of school age mm. and then I remember the Versace symbol yes. <laughs> which is the head of the Medusa so you know not necessarily the most positive uh trio of um first impressions but that was that was my introduction and um I didn't know much more than the story other than she was turned into a gorgon. That was all I knew. So yeah, that was my introduction. I think those um, images you all mentioned are, are, are very indicative of kind of how Medusa's seen today, mm. which is as the monster. Uh, yeah. Do you remember how, your first reaction to learning that she was once a human? I mean, surprise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> idea I was like oh I thought she was you know I mean I suppose I must realize at some point because she was transformed but mm. um yes absolutely I did not um spend much time considering her humanity or where she was before the transitional um mm. experience she had into a monster um I didn't know that for example she was this um young woman not just a young woman but a young woman revered for her beauty and I think that for me was a moment of interest because I thought oh here we go like here are the kind of diametric opposites beauty and monstrosity and and then in the middle of it punishment for said mm. beauty so that that was interesting to me and um yeah I, I I do remember sort of thinking oh ah this is a great opportunity for a story here because you know here is a journey that someone's gone on and we don't know generally speaking I was just an average school girl and if I didn't know I can't imagine many knew we you know such a, a imposing idea this sort of head uh, bodiless woman with a head of snakes that you you stay with that rather than you know exploring the 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 other side of the story 
Yeah, I don't think I ever learned about Medusa's origin until university and up until then it had been sort of Clash of the Titans, scary snake <laughs> women monster yeah. in my head. Yeah. 100%, yeah. Because it is, it is effective. Yeah. It's a, you know, and it, I, when I, before I started writing the book, I, you know, did a little bit of research, not too much, but there's um, Helene Sisu, I probably can't pronounce it right. She's a French writer um, who wrote about Medusa and, you know, this idea for some that it was sort of feminine monstrosity and feminine horror, but also feminine rage mm. and feminine power. And that as well, I think, is one of the reasons why she's always been so alarming as an image because she's frightening probably to men and women because of what um, force she holds within her. Um, and in those very powerful eyes that I first saw in Caravaggio's mm. painting. Uh, did you see, I mean, probably, I think everybody saw a glimpse of it, the, uh, was it Garbati statue that was going all around social media during oh, the sort yeah. of Me Too movement online? Yes, the sort of reverse of Medusa holding, is that right, Medusa yeah. holding? Yeah, Perseus, I think, yeah. Yeah, she was a full, fully bodied. Yeah. Um, yes, and there was some sort of criticism saying, well, you've made her look, you've sort of objectified her beautiful mm. new now mm-hmm. and also that it's not just enough to just reverse the the positions mm. um you have to let medusa herself occupy not necessarily such a position of aggression or or um or or to make her exist in relation to perseus mm. I think that's, you know i think that's such a problem with so many uh so much of you know western the canon of western literature is that so often the woman or the feminine model is the is a vessel or a cipher for the male story or the 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 male journey and i think that's something i wanted to sort of counter in this version that yes perseus plays a part but it's really about medusa's sense of herself and her view of herself which she gradually bolsters in order to kind of survive and to enjoy her life it's really effective in the novel like medusa feels like such a real and human complex vulnerable character who yeah meets perseus but exists beyond perseus um and and the fact that she's a young woman as well it feels so important to the story that she's a, a young woman and you did write this book for a young adult audience i believe i did i did i had a sort of 14 year old, 15 year old in mind, who I imagine based on my experiences and those of my friends and those of many, many women who I've met will have already encountered um, in objectification or things of more severity as well um, in her life. And will be able to identify with that idea of like the value placed on her um, about her physical beauty um, and her obedience, her uh docility and also the kind of confusion of one's own of handling one's own autonomy and power and what to do with that so yeah I had that I had younger women in mind definitely not my nor because I wouldn't view this as a I mean it's it's with Bloomsbury Children's Mm. it's not it's not an adult novel Mm. um, but it's definitely for readers who are older than the readers of The Restless Girls, which was my first children's yes. book, which was for much littler pairs of eyes. <laughs> Both retellings, though, interestingly enough, uh, Restless Girls, retellings of the 12 dancing princesses, is that's that right? It, yeah. 
yeah. Was it yeah. was it a different kind of experience retelling this story than retelling your previous retelling? <laughs> <laughs> Always retelling. Yeah. Um, yeah, like a hundred percent different. Like the first one, you know, is wreathed in fairy tale or the more uh, fantastical, magical, enjoyable elements of fairy tale, shall we say? Um, you know, the kind of transformative power of imagination and exciting things and talking animals and endless trestle tables of food and tree palaces and that sort of thing. Whereas Medusa is a much harder, tougher tale. Um, but even so, I think I wanted, because as you said earlier, like remembering Medusa, who was a, a human mm. before she became um, a Gorgon, remembering her life by the edge of night, which is where she grew up with her sisters. Mm. And it was so enjoyable to inject uh, humanity and sisterliness into her life with her, her two elder sisters, Thino and Eureli, and to give her a pet dog and to give her her fishing boat and her ability with the nets and, you know, a sense of uh, place. Um, that was important to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it is a, it, it is a, a very different subject matter, but at the same time, I do identify similar streaks running through both, which is mm. um, for young, young women, young men as well, to sort of identify or sort of protect their own sense of self and power and self-belief mm. and um, a way to enjoy themselves in life without the sort of external pressures of life that, you know, I am no doubt these days presses down on them very hard. Yes, I, I, I have to say actually for a novel that could be seen as a retelling of a tragedy, uh, a tragic story, it feels very hopeful when you're reading it. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Well, I think, you know, as well, it's sort of, you know, what happens to Medusa with Poseidon when he essentially, well, he rapes her. I mean, it's not overtly described in the book, again, because of age-appropriate concerns. But, you know, I didn't want that to be, for her, the defining um, event in her life. Mm. There's no doubt it's extremely impacting and painful but it is not just the only thing about her. And I think that's what also often happens in Western literature, or, you know, historical, wherever period of history is like, that's the thing. That's why the woman, that's what happens to the woman or the girl. And that's her thing. That's, you know, and that's so damaging. Mm -hmm. And I had to work out a way to tell her story post that event and, and post the event of being transformed into a Gorgon. So she's punished by uh, Athena because Athena assumes or wants to believe that Poseidon was pursued by Medusa that it's Medusa's fault oh you led him on you know it's the classic thing you know well if you weren't wearing such a short skirt all of that sort of business yeah. so yeah the, the the task was to kind of make it more than just that element of the story and there's so much of that in Greek myth isn't there you know mm. assault and rape and it's bloody awful and yep. <laughs> <laughs> quite frankly and, um it's it's um you have to think well okay what happens afterwards what happens next it's particularly wonderful that you managed to do both though like you still explored that issue of consent and trauma and a woman who is so much more than that because sometimes I find when I read Greek myth retellings the answer for other authors is to get rid of the trauma and pretend it didn't happen 
and that's their way of reclaiming it. But it seems so important, especially for young people who may be feeling a lot of pressure or who may be dealing with serious issues of their own, that they can see both those things together. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it, it was important as well that, you know, there's a, there's a very difficult moment in the book where Perseus has to sort of make up his mind whether he's going to kind of be on her side or kind of pursue his own life, his own trajectory, his own narrative within the myth and within the, his own life. And I think it was important for me that, you know, Medusa takes that step of telling him what happened to her which is a very big deal for people to do. And, you know, initially I had him just like hearing it and, and then, you know, I had to make the difficult decision that he was still going to attack her and like try and reclaim his part of the story. But I think it was important that I showed his um, confusion of this gray area, that this girl who he thought was one thing is actually had this thing happen to her what that means to him could he deal with it and in the ultimate in the final call he can't deal with it mm-hmm. he can't fails and um yeah so it, it's interesting and hard to write a story specific it's particularly for younger readers where there are so many gray areas and it's not buried under the carpet it's not black and white um you know here's a boy who has great shining qualities that are very appealing but he's also weak and he's also under the yoke of toxic masculinity and having to be this big guy and she's um much more than the things that have happened to her and she's you know got a a much more complex story that nobody really has cared to listen to and the irony is that one person who has cared to listen is him Mm. so it's messy it's a very messy story. It is, you, you do a phenomenal job of taking it from like what might be a little bit more surface level if you read a poem to something so mm. complex and, and very real. It's wonderful to read. Uh, it's interesting, actually, because when um, I think about her conversation with Perseus, there's a lot of parallels drawn between Medusa and his mother and what his mother's experienced yeah. at the hands of men. And it reminded yeah. me a little bit of that um, sort of discourse that you see a lot online of imagine if it was your mother or imagine if it was your daughter. <laughs> yeah. Is that yeah. something you had in mind? Um, well, I mean, not too consciously Mm. but you know there is that you know that thing where often men come into consciousness when they become fathers or that you know they suddenly make it relate it directly to themselves but it really in a way Perseus doesn't make that connection Mm. um he doesn't see that what happened to his mother as much as he dislikes what happened to his mother which was that Zeus um violated her and and took what he wanted and that was how Perseus came to be born he doesn't necessarily make that connection with Medusa and what happened to her with Poseidon. Medusa makes the connection. She's like, how can he not have um, understood my position? But then I suppose that's the sort of curse of individualism. And, you know, Perseus is just about his own life and his bride-to-be um, waiting back at Seraphos. And, um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's not something that I thought of consciously, but it, Perseus's um, story or his mother's story fits into a continuum mm. um, that Medusa herself has also experienced. And she's very disappointed in him that he can't see it as a, an emerging pattern. Um, he 
he doesn't see it like that at all, which is a failure of imagination, a gross failure of imagination on his part. But um, I think that's also very, very, very common in our society. You know, it's one rule for you and one rule for everybody else. It, it feels very modern in terms of the discourse and the issues, not that it in any way doesn't feel like a, an ancient myth, but it feels still very relevant. And it's incredible that you can sort of bring forth those themes that are still relevant from an ancient story that's thousands of years old to a modern audience. Do you think writing a retelling um, comes with slightly different sort of potentially restrictions, but also freedoms that allow you to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is kind of extraordinary about the myth, the way that they resonate into the 21st century. Um, in terms of uh, restrictions, I mean, in a way, I didn't really feel any restrictions. I felt that, you know, Medusa's story is a tale as old as time, not to use a cliche, but I just did. Um, and in terms of freedoms, I suppose, you know, I've taken, some purists might think that I've taken a liberty at the end of the story, but I, you know, I did write different endings and they all felt like a bit of a cop-out. So, and I felt very free within my decision that actually, you know, the myths are very, very old. They're very, very entrenched, but that doesn't mean that they're not interpretable or flexible. And it doesn't mean that they were originally set in stone anyway. Like they're not like, you know, sprung from the mouth of, I don't know, the, oh, God or the origin of the universe. They're stories told by humans about humans. And um, I think that the way that this book ends, and I don't think I should probably give the spoiler, <laughs> it, kind of, it fits the universe yes. that I created. Um, so there was a, but there was a freedom within that because of the, the original tools or the original um, structures of the story in the first place. That, that was sort of in a, a natural path. Um, so yeah, they are kind of astonishing the way that we can com use them as commentary on, you know, essentially our follies and flaws rather yeah. than our good qualities. But um, yeah, it's uh, it is quite. It was quite ex interesting to me how easily the story could be turned into a conversational style because it is very sort of first person. It's very confiding. It's quite intimate. It's quite casual, but also epic. That you know, there's a sort. Of, she she's like she describes herself as, or I can't remember the person who calls her it, or she describes herself as it, but a sailor poet, mm. and she does have a poeticism to her delivery, which is was irresistible to me to 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 use, because um, I kind of imagined her like in an amphitheater, like you know, this is my this is my tale, and it has a declamatory or a sort of um, performative mm. tone, but it's also. Um, there are humane little details that, you know, I, I hope make it feel um, relatable, I suppose. I, I did feel that when I was reading it, that as accessible as it is, it feels quite lyrical in terms of the writing. And that felt like it was in honour of these 
epic tales of men but this time a woman and that was yeah really oh I'm so glad you said that oh, yeah. yeah that's it <laughs> it's like I just always think of like Odysseus you know sitting down to tell his tale it's like the same thing it's you yeah. know to use powerful grandiose language about yourself as a woman is quite uh challenging I think for many of us we're not we're not um schooled in it we're not sort of um trained in it um and I think a lot of us secretly would like to um but we always fear that people will think we're up ourselves or boastful or arrogant you know it's a fine line I actually thinking back I've been thinking as we've been talking about the fact that you were introduced to Medusa through art and now you mm. have this beautiful book that is also illustrated oh yeah into it hoping that it would be illustrated oh yes I mean I knew it would be so mm. when I um uh, spoke to Ellen Holgate who is my editor there at Bloomsbury it was for it was the, what she was interested in was well, she approached my agent and said, you know, would I be interested in rewriting fairy tale or, or, or some, a pair of stories um, for a modern audience? And yes, I was very interested. It was a dream come true, particularly because she said they would be illustrated. Mm. And I, I love illustration. I do find a great solace and inspiration in painting. I think because I cannot do it myself, mm. So it remains one of the creative arts that is totally shrouded in mystery, enigma, and I love it. And I want it to stay that way because yeah. being a writer, reading novels or being an actress as I was and going to the theatre, you can sort of see a bit behind the curtain and that, that it doesn't take away the enjoyment, but it's less sort of, you're less in a kind of um, audience mode. Mm. So having them illustrated, both the books, was honestly one of the highlights of my career. Like as somebody who is very visual, having such talented artists such as um, Angela Barrett with The Restless Girls and now Olivia Lomanek Gill with uh, Medusa is honestly, it's just such a, it's just a pleasure. Like I just, I'm so lucky because they are such beautiful paintings in this book and she's just taken the spirit of the book and think there are many artists fine artists working within book illustration who could have done it like her to be honest like they're very um they're very individual and unique and um soulful really I mm. think they're, they're really beautiful paintings she is uh because she's a fine artist as well so um I am assuming some of these paintings are huge or, you know, that, that, that have been shrunk into, to fit into the book. And I think she wants to have an exhibition of them. So I really would love to see those in the I, flesh. I was thinking whilst I was reading that I, I was hoping that maybe there would be prints available somewhere that I could buy and oh, hang yeah. on my wall. <laughs> totally. I mean, yeah. there's, there's yeah. a couple in the book that I, oh my God, I would pay lots of money <laughs> to own because I did that with the restless girls I said to Angela um I'll buy some I'll buy some off you because uh I mean I paid her a fair price I, I hasten to add I didn't sort of like say I'll give you 50 quid for them um no but um to own the originals is really something as well if you've written the book and then your imagination has been embodied on paper like that is pretty cool it's yeah. pretty cool seeing somebody else bring your words to life in that way it must yeah 
and in such a, it's like, it's not a, slavish is not the right word, but it's, she, she's made it her own. Mm. So the book has kind of elevated to a new place because of the illustrations of the paintings. So yeah, it's pretty cool. It's wonderful really that you have this story that is a retelling from um, a woman's perspective that has been written by women and has been illustrated by women in, in areas like classics and fine art, which are maybe perceived as traditionally masculine. It's, yeah, it's... yeah. I mean, it is, it is um, a, a positive thing for sure. I went to the National Gallery yesterday for the first time since lockdown and Oh my God. I mean, it was so lovely to be there, but I realized I must've looked at about 50, 60 paintings mm -hmm. and two of them were by women mm -hmm. in, in the history of art from like 1450 to about, I think 1910, mm -hmm. I was looking at, you know, and I think about my school curriculum, the books we read, I think, yes, we had an Atwood in there, but everything else was men. Yeah. And women, young women, women are generally, I think, more willing to ventriloquize, to um, sort of synthesize themselves into male voices, male experiences, which has always been uh, posited really as the universal experience, mm. but of course it is. And somehow because of patriarchy and uh, capitalism and all these forces at play, female experiences, women's experiences have been um, minimized or patronized to a degree that to sort of write about feelings or domestic things or bodily experiences or motherhood or sisterliness or friendship or female dreams has often been not overtly ridiculed yes at times but just considered lesser mm. and yeah. when you're sort of pressed to explain that or to give examples which i'm often asked to do it's not actually that easy to do because it's been so insidious through one's life that you kind of know it's there. And when you speak about it with other women, they know it's there. Everyone knows it's there. But when you're asked, you know, you're asked for the kind of concrete empirical evidence. Well, since when have you ever really been, you know, marginalized? Or when, and you're like, oh, God, like, oh, like, but you it's just it's every day. Yeah. If it's persistent rather than like niche one off yeah. experiences, then how are you supposed exactly. to identify an example? Exactly. And I think, you know, going back to what we said at the beginning about young women who probably by the age of 14 have had bad experiences, every girl and woman I know has had much more than one or two. Mm -hmm. And it's bloody normal mm -hmm. for them. And so mm -hmm. when it's normal, you just you want to get on with your life. So you sort of, again, to use the word synthesize, you synthesize that into your life because you're like, well, I, I don't know what else to do, because if everything is sort of external to me, who am I? I'm not living. Mm -hmm. So it's hard. It's nice, actually, when, when you're talking about that there, the way as well that like female relationships are also dismissed, that this story is about sisters as well. And often you yeah. don't think about it in the traditional sense as a story about sisters, but you, you yeah. bring that into the novel. Yeah, and that was really enjoyable to do, particularly in the character of Steno. I mean, both the characters, Steno and Eureli. So Eureli is more your kind of unapologetic uh, indulger in her own power. She loves her giant feathery wings. I think she goes off every day and does some pretty gnarly stuff in the sky. God knows what she's killing in her talons, but she's she loves her her herself 
Mm. And Steno is more gentle and much more um, aware, perhaps, of the internal tempests in Medusa's mind. But it was lovely to be able to put that into the story to to show that, you know, these girls care about each other um, and are there for each other in a world that really has um, done them a disservice. It's actually now like I'm, I'm, my my brain's on a train of thought now as well that it's lovely that you name the snakes as well and there are these oh, women yes. almost as well. Yes, there's Calypso, Echo, Daphne. Yeah, that, that was great fun. And I thought again that that came to me early in the drafts. Like, oh yeah, come on, let's you know again that's just been a block image. This writhing mass of serpents, but to individualize those snakes, to make them um, part of her corporeal experience of life. So, you know, when she's happy, the snakes are chilled or calm or like a particular snake might be really alert. Or I think there's one snake that definitely has a bit of a crush on Perseus. And that's kind of like part of her psyche, Medusa's psyche when she sort of spots this like incredibly fit guy. Um, So yeah, that was was again, I suppose, an act of, ownership or um, reclamation Mm. of the objectification of Medusa to make her enjoy her so-called deformity. And I think I see that in young women a lot more, um, uh, perhaps on social media or, you know, we, when I was growing up, you really just sort of, not, you're not told to cover up, but I think that's always been a, a, dis- a discourse in society like short skirts or boob tubes or whatever. And I see girls now kind of owning their prettiness or their beauty in a way that I think my generation, I'm 38 now, there was a sort of humility that you had to um, perform or, you know, a demure element generally I mean obviously there were the, the punks and the yeah. the other girls who were, were less uh, willing to kowtow but in general I think um, I do see that a sort of understanding in young women that they have a power and that it's theirs and it doesn't belong to creepy older men. I love that rather than the sort of old-fashioned be pretty but don't know it. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, there's those awful comments that young men or men make, you know, like, well, you were pretty until you said you were, you know. But what do you have? You can't win, can you? You know. <laughs> it's, it's, they hate it. Because well, what it does is it takes away their power over you mm-hmm. to decide whether or not you're attractive. If you say, oh, yeah, no, I know I am. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't know how the hell to relate to you then because they've assumed or adopted that position of superiority or decision making over you, over the way you're going to feel about yourself. But if you take ownership of that feeling of yourself, they have to think much harder and much more creatively about how to relate to you. And then that's where their failings come into play. Yeah. And you don't have to be grateful for their sort of approval either. No, no. <laughs> But I think it's hot because I mean, I used to love, you know, thinking, oh, he thinks I'm attractive or something. But I know it's really hard because like ultimately biology is at play as well. Mm. You know, one, you know, sexual attraction or, you know, wanting to flirt. Like, I don't want to be sort of pious about it all. But like, I think placing and a lot of us do this, placing your value or looking for external validation in the opinions of others, which is very social in many ways, Mm. is is a very damaging um, path to take 
and it's a very hard one to resist. And I think in this story is that's one of the things I was trying to drive home. I mean, Medusa has to learn some very harsh lessons because her physical beauty, as the world perceives it, is really stripped away from her. Mm-hmm. And she has to find value in her new form of beauty, in her new form of physicality. And not just her physicality, but her inner life and her other qualities. Um, so she has to go on a, a journey that is, for most of us takes our whole life. Yeah, it, I, I, I would have adored this book, I know, when I was a teenager, <laughs> especially since I, I loved Greek myth anyway, but I never had this to uh, reflect on Greek myth with. I had, you know, the traditional versions or the films where yeah. Medusa was the monster and I think mm. I could have really benefited from something like this. So it's really yeah. wonderful that it exists. I'm so pleased you wrote it. The final question of any podcast interview I do, um, and I apologise for springing it on you, but I like to leave with a book recommendation from the author. Hey. It doesn't have to be a Greek myth retelling, um, just a book sure. recommendation. <laughs> yeah, well, I do. This is, so this year I decided not to write down what I was reading because I didn't want it to be like competitive. You know, there's irritating yes. things the end of the year where I was like Nick how many books I've read and I'm like yes. great well you learned to read when you were five what do you want freaking <laughs> um but so but then that's when it falls down on me because I can't remember anything I've read um but I can remember one which I read recently and it's called Sorrow and Bliss mm-hmm. and it's by um Meg Mason and it's um it's for it's an adult book mm-hmm. um and it's about this woman who's her mental health disorder is never named and I think that's really an interesting decision of the writer but it's basically her she reaches rock bottom Mm -hmm. and she is plotting back her childhood her teenhood her young womanhood to now to the moment and it's a portrait of a family it's very funny it's very funny like it's so oddly dark and yet very funny and it's a real feat to pull off and um, I, I, the writing is just so su- superlative that um, I devoured it. And I think, I hope it does really well. And I think it's out in July or June. I can't remember when, but um, yeah, that was a good one. The writing was, was brilliant. Well, I can, I can include a link to that in the show notes. But that, okay. that sounds good. I'm going to be looking at <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Really, it's funny because it's like, it's not self-pitying. Mm. and it's not over self-dramatizing mm. it's very matter of fact but it's the, the tenderness is mm. palpable but like there's so much sharpness as well which I really appreciate oh wow that sounds wonderful uh, almost as wonderful as your book I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> oh well thank you so much for joining me to chat more about Medusa and the writing process and feminism and and art and <laughs> everything yeah. really that's my pleasure I talked more but we won't we won't drag it out (laughs) like I mean how how common do you think people listen to like three-hour podcasts maybe that's a niche I could get into (laughs) I mean you never know you could do like three-parters yeah that's very true actually for the better but like yeah I think it's it's um it's a tough art but Mm. yeah I I very much enjoyed this one oh thank you so much